Welcome to AJHP Voices, now comprising interviews on contemporary pharmacy issues and discussions with AJHP authors. The service was formerly known as AJHP Podcasts. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Hello, this is Pamela Shea. I'm assistant editor at AJHP. Before introducing my guest today, I just want to encourage listeners to give feedback on the AJHP Voices program at your convenience. Please click on the listener survey at the AJHP Voices website and answer the questions there. It should take less than two minutes and it would help us ensure that the program is serving listeners well. I'm talking today with Dr. Paul Harris, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist for the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Boston Medical Center. Dr. Harris is one of the authors of the article entitled, Addition of Transumatic Acid to a Traumatic Injury Massive Transfusion Protocol. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. I'll begin by asking, what prompted you to write this article about your experience? For two main reasons. Uh, anecdotally, there seems to be a recent growing interest in utilizing tranexamic acid, or TXA as I'll refer to it, in major trauma patients in U.S. centers. Although the CRASH-2 trial was published probably about five years ago now, it really seems like in the past two years I've had a lot of different uh, pharmacists reach out to me engaging in discussions about how best to use this agent and asking how we're utilizing it in our patients, our trauma patients at Boston Medical Center. And I know this past year at ASHP's mid-year meeting, there are a lot of resident posters and student posters on this topic. So I think with growing interest and because my colleagues and I learned so much about operationalizing tranexamic acid in our, in our MTP patients or massive transfusion protocol patients at our institution, uh, we were really hoping to share our experience with other centers. Another major reason is I believe there's a fair amount of unknowns or controversy regarding using the agent, uh, especially the, the optimal timing, dosing, which trauma patients benefit the most, I think is all completely debatable at this time. Pharmacists, especially and other practitioners, should be aware of the unknowns and participate in discussions regarding the difficulty of applying current clinical literature to real-life practices in regionalized trauma centers. I see. In your article, developing the eligibility criteria is one of the first steps that was taken. So why was this criteria developed? You know, at our institution, part of it was a matter of protocol. All new medications that are requested to be added to formulary for non-FDA-approved indications require a certain level of scrutiny by our P&T. I think that'd be consistent with most institutions. But also, because of some of the unknowns I mentioned, we had a real hard time extrapolating the CRASH-2 data to our trauma patients in, in our regionalized center. The CRASH-2 trial included a lot of patients from countries that did not have regionalized trauma care, meaning that they didn't have the infrastructure in place to transfer patients to to centers best equipped to handle trauma patients. And so because of that, many of the trauma patients included were not subjected to the same level of monitoring blood product administration or what you'd consider usual trauma care in the U.S. I think the average injury severity score of the patients enrolled in the CRASH-2 trial was not published, and so it made it difficult for us to really correlate the degree of injury that those patients had compared to the trauma patients we see in a typical day at our institution. So frankly, I mean, we didn't really know what the consequences of widespread uh, administration of tranexamic acid would be in all of our trauma patients. You know, around that time when it was requested to formulate, the MATTERS trial had also come out and it suggested that the mortality benefit was strongest in those that received MTP. I and mean, while obviously our patients were not military patients like in the MATTERS study, but our MTP patients had very similar injury severity scores and we see a lot of penetrating trauma at Boston Medical Center. So 
you know, we thought it was best to sort of limit our use to our MTP patients who are already at the highest risk from bleeding. So we really wanted to maximize the benefit of this agent and potentially minimize risk of utilizing this medication you know, for all of our trauma patients, considering it was an off-label indication. So it was a way of specifying its use to your needs and your resources, I guess. Exactly. It was, you know, really a multidisciplinary sort of discussion about, you know, what is the best way we can utilize it here based on the data that's out there. So one of the other things you mentioned in the article is this debate about the time frame, the eight-hour time to trauma. Why did you decide on your optimal timing the way you did? I think most believe that tranexamic acid should be administered as soon as possible to trauma patients that are beginning to experience hyperfibrinolysis, secondary to developing acute coagulopathy of trauma, and which is a condition that can occur in up to 40% of trauma patients. But the exact timing of when this occurs and when patients' coagulation profile starts to portray more excessive hyperfibrinolysis varies, and it makes it really difficult to know when is the exact time or the right time to do it. I think the whole point of giving tranexamic acid is to prevent bleeding and the development of hyperfibrinolysis. So I think it makes sense to give it as early as possible. And certainly the data from the MATTERS trial where they gave it within one hour of injury and the exploratory analysis of the crash too certainly point to giving it early. But I think practically it can sometimes be somewhat of a challenge. And it's something that we definitely wrestled with, especially if you do implement it in in high acuity trauma patients, like massive transfusion trauma patients, because sometimes they have prolonged extrication times and they might not come to your institution until they're already an hour out from their trauma, coupled with the fact that there's really, you know, a lot going on at these patients. It makes it hard to give it earliest. We we struggled somewhat with the practicality of, of limiting our time to three hours, but I think most people think it's best to give it early, and currently our group is working to revise our guideline to limited administration within three hours of injury, and we're enlisting a lot of our emergency medicine personnel to make this reality. Really, that is something we've learned out of this process is you know, really getting the emergency medicine personnel, the people that first see them uh, involved, is by the best way to give it early. But you let it go to eight hours so that you weren't cutting people off if they needed it, I guess. Correct. We did allow it to go up to $8 to be more per protocol for the crash two trial. And again, it was debated because many people were leaning towards the three. And we decided that there might be someone that present within three and a half hours that is still at a very high risk of bleeding. Or by the time you are able to administer the drug, it might be a little bit beyond that window. And we didn't want to limit it in those patients that were at that really high risk of bleeding to death. We certainly understood that it's optimal to give it early. And we really pushed for that but we just had a hard time practically making that cutoff so stringent at at three hours. Now that we've had it for a while and we've kind of reviewed our data with our committee, I think we're committed to act steps to make it so that we can sure our patients get it as early as possible. You also mentioned in the article that there were other unknowns with using TXA. Are there other controversies or unknowns that you're still dealing with? Yeah, I think it's unknown if traumatic brain injury patients should receive tranexamic acid based on the current literature that's out there. There's really not a whole lot published on this. I mean, there was a nested analysis of TBI patients in the CRASH-2 trial that had traumatic brain injury, and they didn't show any effect on mortality when it was given, but it really wasn't powered to do so. You know, the CRASH-3 trial is actually an upcoming trial that's going to be looking specifically at the effect of TXA and TBI patients, and that will help us answer a lot of these unknowns and these questions. Another thing that kind of goes along with that is we don't really know how TXA affects the seizure threshold in TBI patients as TXA has been associated with seizures in other populations. So I think the CRASH-3 trial, which is looking at that as a secondary outcome, hopefully sheds some light on that subject. In other areas is pediatrics. There's really not a whole lot of data on this. When we started our uh, the implementation of our protocol, didn't have any sort of guide on eligibility or dosing, and so we opted to exclude those patients. 
since then, there's been a census statement by the Royal Academy of Pediatrics that supports utilizing it in pediatrics, but not based on a whole lot of great data at this point. So that's another area. It's unknown, you know, what, what should be done with tranexamic acid. The dosing is another area that there's not a whole lot of great data. What is the optimal dose? You know, do patients need to get a bolus and infusion? Certainly, you could think of scenarios where potentially the initial bolus would be best, and then potentially following up with, with a second bolus if they had coagulation tests like thromboelastography that show that they were, you know, still hyperfibrinolytic like they did in the MATTERS trial. But at this point, the optimal dosing is, is debatable as well. So you've mentioned seizure patients and pediatrics. How do you see transmatic acid use being changed or otherwise being optimized for trauma patients in the future? We'll know sort of what are the effects in traumatic brain injury and if there's, you know, a higher rate of seizures or or higher rate of, of strokes in, in those patients, you know, would potentially be avoided and really limited to traumatic injury in other areas. And similarly, pediatrics, more institutions add it to formulary and to consider utilizing it. We'll, we'll get more data on utilizing it in pediatrics too. So my final question is, is there any advice you would give to other providers looking to implement similar protocols in their institutions? The key to being successful in adding it from our experience was having a multidisciplinary committee and having an approach in which everyone's in agreement and invested in the process. I don't think that's anything new, but I guess what I would suggest is if you're going to be adding it to be utilized in conjunction with an MTP or massive transfusion protocol to really get significant buy-in from your emergency medicine personnel and anesthesia, get a solid anesthesia presence with the protocol as they can help maximize compliance. If you are going to implement some sort of cutoff for administration or any other criteria, it's really worth tracking that and assessing where you're limited in your practice and how you can improve your compliance by making changes, working with other members of your institution to make sure that you can meet your criteria and can use it in your desired trauma patients. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This has been Pamela Shea with AJHP Voices. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org.